Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 160 for September 5th, 2008. Listener feedback number 49. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. On the web at www.astaro.com. And by audible.com. For your free audiobook and a whole lot more, visit audiblepodcasts.com slash security now. And by Visa. With every purchase, Visa prevents, detects, and resolves online fraud. Safe, secure, Visa. It's time for Security Now, the show where we explain how the Internet works and why it's so very dangerous to be out there without protection. Steve Gibson's here from the Gibson Research Corporation. Hi, Steve. Yo, Leo. Great to be back with you again. The king of security, creator of Spinrite, the ultimate disk recovery and maintenance utility, and many great uh, security, free security tools like Shields Up. Um, and, of course... Longtime host of this show now in our entering our fourth year of security podcasting or netcasting. Yeah. So today is a Q&A. We have a Q&A. It's been a very quiet week, thankfully, on the security front. I have a couple things to talk about that are just little tidbits about security. A, a very short spin right uh, mention following up on actually sort of related to last week. That was Navy a wild story. Man. That was. Yeah. There, there were, we, had, we heard some, from some people who were skeptical about its reality, and, you know, I just read what we received, and so I leave it up to people to judge for themselves, but, you know, I don't know. It, it seemed to have a lot of facts. Either the guy was a very, very competent, creative writer, or it was true. Well, we'll talk about it in a second, but first I want to do mention that, that this show, as usual, is brought to you by those good folks at Visa. You know, the reason they, uh, they uh, sponsor security now is because they know you're concerned about security, and certainly one of the great concerns everybody has online or off is uh, your credit card. That number, you know, you can you're giving that to a waiter at a restaurant or an online site. You know, you want to be thinking about that great meal you're going to have or those new pairs of shoes, not about am I going to be safe? That's one of the things you really don't need to be thinking about. And thanks to Visa, you don't have to. Every purchase you make with Visa is safe and secure. They use very sophisticated real-time fraud monitoring to prevent, detect, and resolve online fraud so you don't ever, you're never liable for unauthorized transactions. Zero liability is the key. That's why when I go online shopping or when I go out to eat, I use, when I send my daughter to France, she's got a Visa card. That's peace of mind. Safe, secure Visa. We thank them so much for their support of security now. So uh, any big uh, any big uh, security updates, any um any Windows well, updates? Anything going the, on out there? The big news of the week, of course, is Google's Chrome. new browser. Yeah, I've um, been using it. I like it. Yeah. Well, we have a. There was a ton of people who wrote in. They went to grc.com/feedback, and I want to continue to encourage people to do so, and to really to and to thank everyone who does because I get a lot of great ideas and tips and pointers, and and a sense for where our listener base is and what they want to hear about. Everyone wants to know 
what I think about the security side of, of course, Chrome yeah. and what Google has done. So, of course, this is only a couple of days ago. I have had no chance yet to to take a good look at it. In fact, w- when I got your email, Leo, saying, hey, you know, I got back early from the airport. You want to do our recording now? I was just in the process of creating a new VMware box. Oh, you are paranoid. <laughs> um, no, it's it's not that as much as... I don't like to install things that I may regret installing because, right, you know, right. Windows is way better. XP now is way better than, than earlier versions of Windows in, like, removing the junk that, that gets installed. But it's like, eh, it's just sort of wear and tear on a, on a Windows system. So for something that I'm not at all sure, I won't immediately say, oh, I'm glad I didn't install that on, you know, my actual hard drive. I just, you know, stick – it's so easy to create a little VMware world and, and stick it in there. And, and use it there. And there are places where it turns out you have to. For example, when I've been when I was working on all this cookie stuff that I'll be returning to once I get the DNS stuff put to bed, Firefox two and three cannot coexist on the same machine. Right. And interestingly enough, Firefox two and IE have cookie interaction. Well, that's there's really some, surprising. There's some cookie collision. It was like bizarre. I thought, what? Well, you wouldn't expect uh, you know, that. Yeah. I thought it was my problem. But anyway, so I've got little VM worlds for, <laughs> for everything because in many t- in many instances, you need, you know, different... Ver- in fact, I've got IE 5, 6, 7, and 8 also in different VMware right. because, again, IE can't... Different versions of IE won't live in the same machine either. So, so it's very useful. But anyway, um, that brings me to a point... So just to wrap up the the issue on Chrome, we absolutely will do an episode. The early news is there are some problems. Uh, naturally, unfortunately, Safari or Safari remains Apple Safari remains the only browser to default to by default have third party cookie yeah. disabled. Yeah. Um, Google's are enabled. Um, it does provide you with the option. However, the the guys in in my news groups, immediately de- determined that because using my not yet public cookie analysis system, that uh, Google is also subject to what's called cro- cross context leakage, meaning that it does not block it does not block outbound cookies; it blocks them inbound, which is really not what you want because it means that if you were to get a cookie. In a first-party context, when you like, you went to a site, like for example, PayPal redirects you through DoubleClick and then back to PayPal. Well, in that in that redirection hop, you have a first-party relationship briefly with DoubleClick, during which time, if you allow first-party cookies as you typically do, you would get one. Then, unfortunately, um, both IE and Safari and um, Chrome, they block incoming third-party cookies, not outgoing third-party cookies, which means that then, even though you've said, I want third-party cookies blocked, when you are at other sites, you're leaking double-click third-party cookies. Well, that's which not good. It's not what you intend. So, yeah. And I also noted, I haven't even gotten it loaded yet, but I quickly, th- from the initial comments I saw in the news groups, um, there is no site whitelisting, blacklisting for like cookie handling and maybe other provisions. Again, I haven't looked at it closely, no, but even the a- setting for third-party cookies is a little uh, odd. It yes, says it's got some strange wording. It says restrict how third-party cookies can be used, not block third-party cookies. Yeah, and then it doesn't give you a policy. It doesn't say how to edit the policy. It just says 
you know, restrict how they're used. Well, I don't know what that, you know, what is it? What is what restrictions am I placing on it? The most the most compelling concept is that they are talking about sandboxing. They're saying yes. that, it, that individual tabs are are they, they, they essentially create browser instances per tab so that, first of all, if if a tab crashes, you don't crash the whole browser. That is, and that you know does happen in IE, where it's like, oh, you know, now I'm hosed and I got to shut down, right, right. you know, all of IE. So that's good. But they are also talking about restricting what the what the code in this window can do. This, I mean, they're using the term sandboxing. So the question is, okay, what does that really mean? The other thing that I liked is, um, in fact, I just read when I was going through the notes to for for today's Q and A. Someone talked about, and in fact, it was a comment about Chrome. Hey, I, you know, I like how, how quickly it launches. He said, I don't la- ever launch Firefox because it takes so long to start up. Yeah, Chrome just pops up. Wow. And I, and I was thinking, what? And it turns out that then he confesses he's got so much add-on It's the extensions, gun. yeah. Yeah, he's yeah. loaded so many extensions in Firefox that it's, it's slowing it down. And he says, I don't load Firefox unless I know I'm going to be surfing for at least 15 minutes. Otherwise, <laughs> you know, it's not worth the waiting for it. Or take and out so, something. That's not a fair comparison at all since no extensions exist in the Chrome at all. Well, but but there will be add-ons and ah. plugins, and they and they comment that the the sandboxing could be defeated by plugins oh. and add-ons. Oh boy, that would be crossing that boundary. So that's something to be concerned about. But also, apparently, there's some sort of process monitor where you can see how much RAM each of your different pages and or plugins and add-ons are taking up. So they're enforcing some accountability. So you can say, oh, look how fat that page is versus this page. Well, even more than that, according to the comic book anyway, you can say if a process fails or causes a problem, you could say who did it, which you can't do in Firefox. And that will really help in, in eliminating the buggy extensions. So at this point... And it's multi-threaded, you know- which you, you ought to love. you got that four-way... Xeon that doesn't do anything. <laughs> right. Sitting around, give me something to do. <laughs> well, uh, hey, it's mu- I think a multi-threaded processor, I mean, that's where you're seeing a lot of the speed improvement. Yep. Yep. So cool. so we got Chrome, and we'll, we'll, we'll be doing a comprehensive analysis of it. I wanted to mention that a number of different news outlets covered the increasingly good news for people, which is increasingly bad news for the likes of Nebuad and Form. Nebuad has lost their CEO. He wandered off to go somewhere else. Uh-huh. Um, they've apparently also lost all their customers. Uh-huh. Like, yay! Uh, and, <laughs> Couldn't and happen Form, to a nicer bunch. <laughs> and Forms stock has fallen 75% yeah. since its peak, which is 11 days after their announcement. Everyone figured out what was going on, and it just collapsed. So it's like, that's, good. That's encouraging, because people who say, oh, get over it, privacy's dead, you're never going to be able to have privacy ever again. There's an example of if, if people are aware of it and, and stand up and, and say, we don't want this, we can actually defeat this stuff. Yes. And I mean, and again, it's it's a perfect example of, OK, no one would have a problem with this if it was opt in. Right. That is, if people voluntarily signed up in return for some benefit to them. Instead, this was all on the benefit yeah. of the publisher that was going to be getting higher ad rev, higher ad revenue on a promise that the advertising would be more tightly targeted and therefore they, they could get a higher dollars, um, you know, CPM dollars. So. Anyway, the good news is um, these guys are falling on hard times fast because there's enough awareness now and enough concern about privacy yeah. and security 
that they can't, you know, they couldn't sneak around under the cover of darkness and and get away with this. And then lastly, I did want to mention to any uh, anyone else who's using VMware, when I fired my VMware workstation up, it said, hey, it's been a while since we checked for updates. Actually, it's been a while since I fired it up, so it hasn't had a chance to <laughs> right, check for updates. Right. Um, when I did, I found there had been a change. I was using uh, 6.0.4. We are now at 6.0.5. And one of the things that they have done, it was, a, it was a, a security update largely. There were three major things. But one thing they did I really liked. It wasn't a bug fix. It was a policy fix. They are, they are setting, VMware is now setting the so-called kill bits on all of their ActiveX controls. So in VMware, they are using ActiveX controls as just part of their their object glue for their solution. But they recognized proactively that much as is the case for all ActiveX controls, and we've, we've discussed this on, on a number of instances in the past, IE can be asked to invoke ActiveX controls that exist even if they were never designed to run in IE in order to ex exploit any any behaviors, not even necessarily any problems, but behaviors. And you might imagine that VMware has some powerful ActiveX controls. And so they said, okay, we're just turning on all the kill bits on all of our controls because none of them were ever meant to be used in Internet Explorer, so we're going to prevent them from being used in Internet Explorer, which as a policy is brilliant and Everyone should do it. I mean, anyone producing an, an ActiveX control which is not intended to be an add-on or a plug-in to any browser ought to go to some lengths to make sure theirs can't be exploited. It just it makes sense for them. They'll avoid the bad press of being part of some exploit, and it certainly makes sense for any end users who would like to be using these controls safely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Ah, oh, do you have any? Uh, you, uh, you mentioned at the beginning, and I and I and I want—is this a good time to bring up the spin right thing? Sure, because uh, you know we we're subject to this kind of uh, uh, mail all the time, you know, and and you never can really va validate that it's true or not. Um, so as I'm listening to you last week, I'm thinking, boy, this could this is a really amazing story, but who knows if it's true? Did you have people write in saying, "Hey, I was a Navy SEAL. This couldn't be true." No, um, I heard both ways. I heard I some guy who was just Mr. Sour Grapes uh, wrote to the office and, and Sue forwarded it to me saying, oh, my God, how gullible could you possibly be? <laughs> I'm not going to believe anything you ever tell me again. And it's like, OK, well, there was there was no your, evidence thank, either way. Thank you for your email. Yeah, uh, actually, I didn't bother responding to him because right. no. <laughs> he's made up his mind. Right. Yeah. I mean, right. there was no evidence either way. Um we, our listeners know, based on the testimonials that they have written and that I have read, that it's entirely possible. I mean, you know, it could have happened. It's oh, not, sure. Yeah, there's no question about that. I mean, you know, the, the space station has a copy of Spinrite because they've had problems with their laptops when they're in orbit. And it's a little hard to send the drive to Fry's or to go pick up another one. So, you know, I mean, it works. We know it works. And... It would be very cool if this were true. I hope it was true because I would love the idea that it was, you know, helpful in the field. I mean, in the field. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> really, really in the field. Yeah. Well, um, my, 
email that I got this week, and it was written by someone who heard us last week, and the subject was Spinrite Saves Many Lives. And this is way toned down. I mean, I don't think anything will be the same as last week's, but he said, Hi, Steve. Yes, Spinrite saves lives, or saved lives. I work for a large medical group, and we have lots of doctors who read x-rays from their homes after hours. One day last week, one of our doctors called me and stated that his computer would not boot up and was stuck in the window screen. He was going to need it the next day to read x-rays from home for a large hospital. So I started spinning on his machine before I left for the day. Like magic, when I returned it to him the next day, it was up and running perfectly. You saved me many hours reloading windows and various programs with tricky configurations. I called the doctor to let him know how great your program is and how much time you saved me. Thanks again, Steve. Well, there you go. So, See, it so, does save lives. Yep. Well, it did. <laughs> a little less dramatically this week than last week, but yes. It cures and, broken bones. It does. <laughs> well, that's great. And, uh, and uh, you know, you, there's no way of knowing one way or the other whether a story like that is true. Uh, and, you know, we're not gullible, but we don't have any reason not to believe it either. So, Well, yeah, and we, we could call it well-written fiction. I don't want anyone else to do that. Please do not send <laughs> Do not fictitious, make up stories. <laughs> do not make up fun, fantastic-sounding spin-ride stories. I, you know, that'll start being suspicious. So I'm not soliciting that at all. I would rather, all I want is real testimonials from real life. I think... Last, uh, n- next week, I'm going to tell how Spinrite saved 200 kittens. So, that's... <laughs> and is that a true story? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have it. I have it. I... <laughs> oh, oh, we're getting out of control now. I got to tell uh, you. <laughs> okay. Hey, as long as we're talking about testimonials, I want to do a testimonial right now for something you know I am a big fan of. Uh, when we drove uh, Abby to the uh, airport, of course, we did it in very early morning in heavy traffic, and it reminded me of the 13 years. I spent driving to Tech TV from Petaluma an hour each way in the best of times, sometimes two, even three hours uh, every single day spent in traffic. And man, these guys saved my life. Audible.com, they're the best. I, you know, I, I, I have uh, been reading Audible books since 2001. And uh, if you are in a position where you're driving or you're... Uh, uh, maybe working out, walking, anywhere where you can't pick up a book and hold it in front of your eyes and read, this is a great way to read. Somebody sent me a, an email uh, that said, well, I don't know if you can call it reading. I get this from time to time, and we talked about this too, Steve. You don't, you don't <laughs> think it's reading. Uh, it's listening. He said, if you can say to me that, you know, he said, compare two books, one that you've read on paper, or it's the same book if possible, one reading on paper, one listening. Are you saying that the ex- experience of listening to it is as compelling and as real and as vivid. And I'm saying it's more compelling. It's more real. It's more vivid. Just remember, I know it might be hard, when people told you stories when you were a kid. That's what I'm talking about. It's like listening. He says, if you were to read an actual printed page book versus an audible book edition, I would be interested to know which you enjoyed more, which allowed you better comprehension, any other insight you could provide? Well, I can tell you, I always enjoy, and I, this has happened many times where I've either listened to a book that I've read or vice versa. Um, for, I'll give you an example, the John Adams book. I listened to first, but it was an abridged edition read by David McCullough. Incredible. But I wanted to know more, so I got the full print edition. And I can tell you right now, I, my comprehension was higher to the, uh, listen, the audible version. Maybe that's because I'm an aud- auditory listener. I mean, that re- learner. I mean, that could very well be the case. Uh, 
I, I enjoyed it more. And I can say that's true of every single book I've read. I've yet to find a book. I guess I don't read uh, computer programming books. I don't listen to them. <laughs> I have to read those. But almost everything else, certainly fiction, history, nonfiction, that's the way to listen. You know, I mentioned uh, last week that the election uh, section on Audible is fantastic. Pro bono, free stuff. If you're following the conventions, if you're following the election, this is great. Uh, Fred Thompson's speech is up there right now, absolutely free. Of course, Obama's speech from the Democratic Convention. Um, Sarah Palin's speech will be up there. Uh, As we speak, it isn't yet, but it will be by the time you hear this. John McCain's speech at the Republican Convention. This is a great way, I think. You're watching on TV. You're taking in a lot of other stuff, but you really want to get to know somebody and hear them and really get a sense of them. I think this is a great way to listen to speeches. You don't get the body language, but you get the meaning, the concept, and you really hear what's going on, the mental process in somebody's mind. That's, I'm telling you, audible works. May not be for you. May not be for everybody. Steve, Steve's not an auditory listener, uh, learner, but... (laughs) Yeah, I, you're not. I, I know I, you're I'm not. I'm here to tell you, Leo, I am an auditory listener. I have been listening. <laughs> learner, though. You're not an auditory, auditory learner. <laughs> <laughs> Audiblepodcast.com slash security. Now, I got to tell you, you're going to just do me a favor. Try one book. And this is free. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash security. Now, sign up today. You'll get a credit toward a free book. That's all we ask. Just give it a try. But I, have, I do have to warn you. I get email from people all the time. I got an email just yesterday from a guy who said, um, you know, I, 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 I've known about Audible for years, never listened. Now I'm hooked. I listen to a book a week and I love it. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. We thank them so much for their support of security now. Speaking of reading, Steve, I'm going to, you have to uh, listen to these as I read them to you. How about that? And answer you're these be, questions. You're going to be audible, Leo. You're going to be an auditory listener. <laughs> yeah, you're definitely audible. <laughs> Auditory listener. <laughs> auditory listener on this one. Question numero uno from John Skog or Skoggy in Bergen, Norway. It's probably Skog. He says he's not satisfied with SATA. See, there's a there's a visual pun you might not get if you just listen to it. Hi, Stephen Leo. Love your show. I've been listening to it every day when I ride the bus to work since May of this year. Uh, I've had. Two new Samsung SpinPoint F1 1-terabyte SATA 2 drives. One of these drives crashed after a week of normal usage. The other one lasted longer but started to disappear from the system. At random, it seems. I also have two Samsung 250-gig drives, which work fine. Something SpinRite also tells me. Now, one of my 250-gig drives has started disappearing from the system as well. But SpinRite reports surface scanning level 4, which I also use on the terabyte drives, to have no faults. On either of the 250 gig drives. Currently, both drives seem to work after restarting the system a couple of times. I recently upgraded my machine. My setup, except for my hard drives, is a Thermaltake Tough Power 850 watt power supply. Wow. And yeah. an eight, 850 watts. And an Asus GeForce 9800 GTS with 512 megabytes of VRAM. Could the new power supply be responsible for the behavior of two new drives? Or is just bad luck on my part? My old PSU was a Tangan with 480 watts of power why are my drives disappearing he asks you know it really does sound like a power supply related problem as opposed to say an os problem yeah i mean i'm not sure when he says his drives are disappearing what he means i mean i i've had um i mentioned to someone else that i had been unimpressed with this the design of sata connectors 
Um, yeah, they fall out some, really easily. And yes, wouldn't you think in this day and age, Leo? Well, a lock and connector, know, please. Well, now of course the 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 trade-off was that the SATA, the connector spec was designed to be hot swappable. So right. they're hot, they're right. hot plug connectors. The idea being that you don't need a case or anything else around the drive. Basically, you just you know you put the drive on rails or you use a case where the drive just slides in with a little with a, you know a, a minimal. Um, uh, uh, enclosure around it, and so it, it the, the drive itself plugs into the back plane where you're going to have your RAID or or whatever. So they were you know they were trying to come up with a low cost solution, but I'm very unimpressed with you know with the you know the SATA connector that was designed you know just in the last couple of years. It's like oh please guys it, you know and you, and you're right. Why couldn't you do it when you have a a cable connection. Why not have some optional latches on the side so that a cable plug yeah. to a SAT, SATA drive would lock in and hold itself? How hard I agree. is that? They're just, yeah, they're just not. They're just not very st- stable. So that was my first thought. But when he talks about restarting the computer a few times, um, that shouldn't if, fix it if it's a connection that's bad. One of the things that that people should be aware of is that you know he's got some high speed large you know one terabyte sata 2 drives these these contemporary drives are using more power than older slower drives and it it can be that if 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 power supplies are not beefed up in concert with increasing for example you know, um, you know, th- th- this GeForce 9800 GTX, that's probably got a couple hard drive connectors on the back of it, too, because it can't get enough power just from the motherboard. You know, the, the higher end graphics cards, as I'm sure you know, Leo, they have their own hard drive connectors. Oh, on yeah. Them. We bought we had to buy a 1200 watt power supply for Ogham. 1200 watts. Right. It costs as much as a PC it was 600 bucks. So he's got a really high-end card that's probably got a couple hard drive connectors on it just for the video card, right. and he, it sounds like he's got four drives. He had two, a pair of SATAs and, and, and a pair of Samsungs. Um, so, you know, it may very well be that his power supply either was or is, you know, not footing the bill. And, you know, these things are all made now in Taiwan or China. You know, they're they're certainly checked initially but you could also just have a bad, you know, like from the factory, an infant mortality problem with a power supply, which is it's got, you know, high hum or bad regulation on on the, the on the five volts or the 12 volt line. His motherboard may be pulling a lot of power, too. So I, I would I mean, this seems like like something not about the drives, but more like, you know, some of the drives need and what they need is power. That's that's well, that's interesting. Huh. Um, I've also seen the operating system lose drives. We we get complaints all the time about Windows losing drives. So yeah, who knows what that one? Who knows what it is? But it doesn't sound like there's anything wrong with the drive itself, right? I mean, that's the that's the result of that spin right test. If, if if you yes, right, exactly. And if you power it down and up a few times, and then the drive comes back, it's like, uh, okay, well, now you're also restarting Windows a few times, so Windows is coming back. So maybe Windows has forgiven the drive. I mean, it just. It is difficult to know, but certainly we sort of take power for granted. And with the you know with, with graphics cards that now need two hard drive connectors of their own, and and motherboards that are becoming more and more power hungry, where you get that extra yellow cable for to, to give right. it much more twelve volts. Right. Um, it's the case that you know power is becoming really important. We're just sucking a lot of it. 
And, and heating our rooms, too. <laughs> yes. I've got the AC on high today. Man, this stuff generates a lot of heat. A lot of heat. And now, a public service announcement from Spencer B. in Utah, USA. Hey, Steve and Leo, I've been getting about five emails a day from greetingcard.org. The URL and the message links directly to an EXE file called ecard.exe. I know this is a huge problem. I thought it'd be a good thing for you guys to know about it. Love your netcasts. Listen to them devoutly. Keep up the great work. I wanted. To, I mean, this is certainly an obvious thing for all of our listeners, but it, I thought it was just worth reinforcing, not so much for the people who listen to this netcast slash podcast, but for them just to take a moment to make sure everyone they know and care about know, or sort of thinks yeah. about this. Yeah. I, I know that greedy cards are uh, unfortunately it annoys me because my mom and some less tech savvy yes, friends of mine are sending me these things yep. all the time and what pisses me off frankly is they're putting my email address into some third party site that sends me the card they're not sending it to me directly they're like oh you know would you like to send a card to steve it's like yes i would here's his email address well of course now you know the greeting card website has my email address which is something that i guard and tend to treat as my private information i don't want it spread around because that's of course where how spam happens but more importantly some of these cards they really are nice i mean they're really beautiful flash animations and i mean it's like okay i can understand why somebody sent me this is this you know it's an impressive nice piece of work the problem is this concept of greeting cards is becoming popular and so an evil site like this greetingcard.org or well that that may just be a completely made up site but but someone you know pretending to send email that is a greeting card sends you this link and you've had success with it for the last 10 times you've opened a greeting card suddenly you click on this and bang you're infected with whatever malware this exe file is installing on your machine do, do so, we do we know it's malware or just presuming because it's an exe file that it's malware you're right. We don't know what's going I mean, it could be a greeting card. Get out your copy of VMware <laughs> right, and right. fire it up. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, I, 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 on general purposes, I don't even, when my mom sends me these uh, e-greetings, I don't, I don't yeah. open them. I, I'm sorry. I, I, you know what exactly. really bugs me is not merely that she's sending me this link in an email, which as we know is bad, but also that she's given my email address to some other third party without permission. Yep. yep. I, yep. I, try to, I try to educate people on the radio show about this, but I have not high hopes. It's worth also mentioning that there is a very high level of email now, uh, just spam, which is reputing to be a misdelivery of a package. Um, oh. FedEx, FedEx in particular, but also DHL and UPS, where the email says, you know, we attempted to deliver a, to deliver a package to you. Please click, click this link to open the invoice so you can see the details, who it was from, and so forth, and we can ar- arrange to reschedule delivery. And it's it's catching a lot of people who are like, oh, no, I, I missed my I bought a box of something. I want it. I mean, <laughs> it, again, it uses an emotional hook, right. something people like, oh, someone sent me something. I, I, I need that instead of something we don't care about, you know, like, you know. These guys are really up. good at social engineering, at tricking you yep. into, into doing something you don't want to do. It's just really the yep. – it's a sad state of the world, and uh, you just got to educate everybody you know. I just say, you know, don't open attachments. Don't click links in email. Yep, and I tell my friends not to send me anything. And, yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Please don't. Exactly. 
Lil Banchick, like that Lil Banchick in Long Island, New York, wants to know how long to wait. Steve, I've heard you state over and over, nothing is secure until people have had time to pound on it, to discover weaknesses. With Google's new browser, how long, again, we're back to Chrome, in your opinion, would be long enough? Especially since the fine print in the EULA states that Google is allowed to install updates and patches at any time without warning. How long? How long, Steve? Well, part of what Chrome is doing is interesting because Google has said that they will be providing the browser with a continually updated list of bad sites. Oh. So so they're going to have a, a blacklist, essentially, in in Chrome, and Chrome will be pinging Google for, for continual updates to that. And, of course, they're going to be doing security patches and so forth. So, so that's good. Um, you know better than I, Leo. I mean, I know from our listeners, this is immediately on everyone's radar. So, in general, is Chrome succeeding? I mean, has it, has oh, it been... Well, everybody, with- everybody wants to use it. Um, you know, of course, it just came out yesterday. We're recording this on Wednesday. It came out Tuesday um, I downloaded everybody downloaded there's some really obvious great things in it uh, I think people are really concerned about the EULA uh, particularly the part about the EULA which says even though you retain copyright we retain the right to do anything we want with content you post using this browser and to distribute it to third parties so that would mean I guess your email your blog posts uh, that's a little scary Con- content you post yeah. with this browser yeah, isn't that a way? Wow. Cre- Here, you want me to read it to you? This is a this is very creepy. Now, of course, worth- I think and I'm going to give Google the benefit of the doubt. This is the kind of language they put in EULAs to protect themselves against being sued by somebody who says, "Google, stop caching my data," because these things happen. But it says you retain copyright and any other rights you already hold in content which you submit, post, or display on or through the services. In other words, Chrome by submitting, posting, or displaying the content. You give Google a perpetual, irrevocable, worldwide, royalty-free, and non-exclusive license to reproduce, adapt, modify, translate, publish, publicly perform, publicly display, and distribute any content which you submit, post, or display on or through the services. Furthermore, you agree this license includes a right for Google to make such content available to other companies, organizations, or individuals with whom Google has relationships for the provision of syndicated services and to use content in connection with the provision of those services. Now, now, you're using the term services, though. Are we sure that that's not their online web-based things to which people would be posting content? Because there I could see everything you said makes sense. If it's like, you know, Google Calendar or, or you know, some blog where you're, where you're posting content to a Google-hosted web facility right. as opposed to through the browser, using the browser as a conduit. You know, I'll have to go back and look at the at the part of the EULA where they define services, and it may be that they are, but I don't see why that would be in the EULA for, for Chrome, however. So, so. so explain to me, what do you think the excitement is? I mean, we have Firefox and a huge adoption of Firefox, and it's popular and, and been pounded on, and we're at, at version 3, and 3 looks good. What's, what's the attraction of another browser? Um, by the way... Uh, Services refers to Google's products, software, services, and websites. Wow, <laughs> everything. That's nuts. everything. The attraction is uh, several fold. I think the the you know we had this debate yesterday on MacBreak Weekly, um, and Mer- Merlin Mann was very adamant. Why do we need another? But let me tell you why Google's doing. That. I mean, one one credible reason that that sh- that uh, 
I think shines uh, some merit uh, on Google is that they want to have a browser that does really, really well on uh, uh, cloud computing. Yep, on, on Google's sort of stuff, because clearly we know that so far, basically all of their services have been hosted through other people's browsers, right. through IE, Firefox, and Opera. So if you use Google Docs, or you use Gmail, or any, frankly, any JavaScript-based web uh, application, it runs much better in Chrome. They are using a very, very fast JavaScript engine. It's the fastest one out there. Uh, 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 it also is the only browser I know of that's multi-threaded. Uh, so you, that speed is not uh, is not phony. It's real speed, and and if you and, and and it also has built in Google Gears, which means when you're not online, these uh, uh, cloud computing programs like say Google Docs still can be used, still persist, and uh, and of course that's very important. So all of these things, they feel I think they could they could credibly say, look, we just don't feel other browsers do a good job of this, and we want Google Docs to succeed, so we're going to make the browser that it, that it, that this stuff needs. Well, I do know that it looks pretty clean. I mean, it just has a nice, simple, Beautiful. clean uh, yeah. interface. I really like that. But then uh, many others point out, yeah, but what is Google's real business? It's advertising. Google is essentially creating a, a, a giant spy on your on your system. That's a concern, too. Yeah, it's a completely legitimate concern. So, you know, I, I'm torn over this. And I have to say that EULA is just might be the thing that puts me over the top. I think they put it in there because they don't want to get sued over caching, which they have been before. And depending upon where the SSL happens, I mean, if you're using an SSL connection, then, you know, even though you're using their browser as the portal, um, you know, I mean, guess they could scrape it off before it before their browser encrypted what you posted. I mean, they certainly could. But um, uh, I don't know that. I mean, that does seem a little too uh all-encompassing, too sweeping, as it's written right yeah, now. Yeah, I see these EULAs all the time, and people are always complaining about them. And it's very—it's not at all uncommon to have this kind of blank. You know, the lawyers are going to say, "Look, we're going to protect you against all exposure, so you better put all this wording in there." But what they don't realize is some people do read the EULAs, and on the, in this day and age, all it takes is one person with a blog to read the EULA, and everybody knows about it. Yeah, well, they—all they, of our listeners do. They now. do now. Ryan Sullivan attending college in New York wonders. About the campus network security. Hi, Steve. I'm a freshman in college. I guess he's just going to school now. An avid listener, so of course I want to make sure I'm secure on my college network. Yes. I don't know much about my college network other than it's a Cisco network. Everyone has to use their college email address and password to log in via VPN over IPsec UDP to get access to the internet on campus. I would assume this is a good way of keeping unwanted people out, even though it's single-factor authentication especially since my college makes us change our passwords every 60 days. But what I'm more concerned about is the other students on the network. I go to a very high-tech college, so most students know their way around computers very well. well I want to know, how can I be safe on my college network? Is there any way another student already on the network can do anything to me or get any information on me, or am I just being paranoid? Thanks for an amazing show. Keep up the great work. Uh, this was a great question oh, yeah. because you know it leverages... A lot of what we've talked about and, and learned over the years of the podcast. Um, first of all, I'm impressed with wherever it is he's going. It doesn't, he doesn't tell us where he's going um, in his note. But essentially, this means that every single student must have um, presumably the Cisco VPN client installed on their, you know, the computer in the dorm room or on their laptop, and that literally all the traffic 
all the student traffic at least crossing the internet um, on the campus network is encrypted. So, you know, Cisco's got good, you know, state-of-the-art VPN technology. It means that you'll, you, in order to get on the, on the campus network at all, you need to log on to their VPN client that establishes an encrypted connection to a, a back-end VPN server, which is, you know, the way you're able to, to get out then onto the Internet or onto the campus's own intranet. So... The only vulnerability is because all the traffic is encrypted completely on the net. The only vulnerability is, as he says, as, as Ryan mentions, the the single factor authentication, which is occurring at his laptop. So it's his laptop that he wants to protect. I would say um, use, for example, a power on BIOS password. It's, you know, somewhat annoying but it is, is stronger than using a Windows password, and you probably want to use a Windows password also because it is, it is the, the laptop which could get, for example, which a, a fellow student in, could install a keystroke logger in order to capture Ryan's um, uh, authentication as he's typing in his username and password, and that would allow somebody else to pretend to be him. It, it would... Well, and it very well may be that the campus is logging the the network activity per student based on their login credentials. So you want to probably prevent someone from being able to impersonate you um, to the rest of the of the people on the campus. But uh, the only real point of vulnerability that I can see is at his laptop and you know, his own login credentials. It's again, it's, 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 it demonstrates strong security policy that the campus is also enforcing a 60 day password change. I yeah, mean, that, that's, that's amazing. Just, yeah. I mean, it's teaching all of the students good security practices, which is, you know, good to see. You can imagine when they eventually um, wander off into the corporate world, if someone says, oh yeah, we never bother changing our passwords. <laughs> it's like, what? You don't change them every 60 days. We did that. when I was a freshman, <laughs> yeah, we did that in college. I, th- I think what he's saying, though, is it's that, that, that age-old issue of when you're on a network, uh, if other people can get into your system, uh, uh, you know, in other words, if you're, you're, because you're on a shared network, don't they have unusual access to your, your hardware? Or does a VPN prevent that? Um, so when, when I go to a hotel, we, we talked about this the other day, and I use the hotel's network. Everybody else in the hotel, unless they've done something special to segment it, can can see that I'm there and anything I'm sharing is visible to them. They're on my intranet. Yes, if you don't have encryption, but the but VPN, because we're using VPN, it's safe. Exactly. Got you you have you, you have encryption from from you to the VPN server. Now it's not clear at that point. Once it becomes decrypted, then is there visibility? to other laptops or other machines on the network. It might well be, for example, that you could still scan the network. Your scan would go through the VPN tunnel, come out the other end of the VPN tunnel, and then start sniffing around for for IPs. I mean, it's a function of, like, where have they installed NAT? Is there NAT also going on so that everybody is also behind an implicit NAT router? So, again, you're able to get out into the public segment, but then not back in to individual private connections. So there, there's more that we don't know right. about how the, how this is set up. But at least the traffic, no traffics, no no raw packet sniffing would function on the on the 
on the segment of the network that the, that the students and faculty have access to, because all of that by, you know, by virtue of policy is going to be encrypted. And that's, that's really great. Makes sense. Martin Nothnagel in Berlin, Germany, mentions that Microsoft is determined. Hi, Steve. I'm a longtime listener. I just want to drop you a short comment. In the last episode, you and Leo talked about DEP. And uh, that after uh, Microsoft providing the base for secure software, it is now respons- the responsibility of the ISVs, the independent software vendors, to develop DEP-compatible software. I just want to bring to your attention that Microsoft has some ways to force these vendors to use DEP. For instance, the um, Windows logo program requirements and policies state, this is that thing if you want to sell software that says, you know, certified for Windows. In the category of image printer drivers, the requirement is printer driver components run with data execution protection enabled and with UAC, user account control, enabled as a non-administrative user. So in this example, to get that Windows logo certification, printer drivers shipping in 2009 or later must be able to run with DEP enabled to become a driver signed and certified by Microsoft. That is a long-term process, but Microsoft is slowly tightening the thumbscrews. Yeah, I, I liked this, and I had forgotten to mention that, that Microsoft is, for example, that policy you just read is effective June 1st, 2009. So, you know, with you know, everyone has plenty of time. That's a year from now. But Microsoft has made it very clear that, you know, everybody get your act together. If if you want us to sign and certify your drivers, and if, and as the OS tightens up, of course, signed drivers is going to become a requirement. Also, yeah, it already is so, in Vista sixty four bit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So so I mean, it's it's this is this is a good move. And I was I was wondering, you know, if you know, didn't this mean or does it mean that long term Windows will end up being more secure? than the open source platforms. And, you know, because the open source platforms by definition don't have these kinds of, of enforced requirements. And, and I think that while that may happen, in general, Microsoft is just educating the world. They're raising the bar, and they're, if nothing else, they're set, finally setting an example for some things that can be done right by policy. We, you know, it's it's... It's always necessary to excuse them for making mistakes. Anyone can make mistakes. Microsoft, plenty of them. Um, but still, they're saying, look, this is the way things need to be done. And so you can imagine that the, the non-Microsoft OSs are, gonna, are, are incented then to say, oh, we have that too. You know, we're doing that too. We're, we're working on enforcing these policies and technologies, which are clearly beneficial to security. Because it would be bizarre, frankly, if Windows became the most secure operating system in the world. But not a bad thing. I'm I'm all for it. Not I a vote bad for it. Yep. It's only right if it's the most used operating system in the world that it become the most secure operating system in the world. I'm, it would be nice. You know, don't don't think I'm rooting against that by any means. Kashyap in Hyderabad, India. Wow, I love it that we have such an international audience. Had a request for security now. Uh, he says, hi, Steve. I'm a security professional working in India. We would be extremely grateful if you can enlighten us in depth on the less known but very effective cross-site request forgery. Well, well. this question, when, <laughs> I, I, as I was, as I was yeah. reading the mail, I thought, wait a minute, you know, we did a whole, a whole episode on that. We did. And so, 
I went well on 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 cross site scripting, which right. is the same sort of thing. Oh, it is. Uh, okay. Yeah, and so I wanted I want to take this opportunity to to let this listener and all of our listeners to remind them that GRC now has a site wide search and a security now search that is that you're able to restrict. And uh, for curiosity, I, I put grc.com in right there on the page in the upper right hand corner was a search box. I put in cross site scripting hit the search button, and there was like PDFs and text pages and references to our podcast. I mean, so I just sort of wanted to give people a heads up, not about this topic, but about, you know, anything that they're curious about. You and I now, Leo, have been doing this for 160 weeks. We've covered a huge range of topics. Elaine has transcribed them all. Google has found them all and, and searched and indexed them all. And so... If you just go, if you're wondering about some topic in security, grc.com, and just put your question into our search box, and it will instantly find for you, um, you know, our presentation on those topics, both in audio format and in text format. It's a great resource now. I mean, with that many shows, uh, there's just no end of stuff. So a cross-site request forgery is basically the same as a cross-site cross-site scripting. Yeah, it's just it's a different term for the same okay, concept. Got it. And we we did a beautiful. Podcast. I remember. Yeah, I remember. Yep. Yeah, Terry Voth in Toronto, Ontario, would rather WPA than WEP. Well, who wouldn't these days? He says, "My son got a Nintendo DS." Oh, I see the problem already. Uh huh. Probably the biggest driving force in North America to run WEP since it won't run under any other wireless security mode. Fortunately, the podcasts had me trained well enough. To flinch <laughs> when my <laughs> I could just see it. Ah when my son oh asked me to switch things to WEP. Oh maybe if a Pavlovian response describes an involuntary response to a potential reward, we should call a Gibsonian response an involuntary response to a potential security threat. I like it. I had a Gibsonian response. <laughs> I recalled the Y configuration that Steve suggested that was with three routers. Looked at the two working wireless routers I had and started scheming on a way that I could get WEP up and running without buying a new router. And maybe I have it. All right, so let's visualize this now. This is, let's see how good an auditory learner you are. All routers I've bought recently, all Linksys, have had DMZs or demilitarized zones. That's where you take a part of the network and say, hey, you're just outside the bounds of the router. You can, any traffic can come and go. What if I hooked up my secondary WEP router to the DMZ port of the primary WPA router? If I understand it correctly, nothing from the DMZ WEP will have access to the rest of the network. We could still use the secondary router's firewall protecting from the WEP network from the internet. The only risk I could see is the neighbor hacking in using my bandwidth, stealing my son's Pokemon. <laughs> Tragic, I'm sure, but considering my financial and... Uh, Identity information are safe. I think I could live with it. Any holes I've missed? So he's saying you don't need to use three routers in a Y configuration. You could do two. Is he right? No. Yeah, that's what I thought. No. Unfortunately, um, first of all, uh, the DMZ port is sort of a is a very is a new extra feature that some routers have, which is is like a less a, a lower configuration responsibility for the traditional DMZ configuration. Now, um, a real, and, and all of these are sort of poor man 
DMZs. As you stated it, Leo, a real DMZ, so, you know, a DMZ short for demilitarized zone, a real DMZ on a on an industrial strength, real firewall is its own interface on its essentially on its own network, which is outside of the network that you're wanting to protect. And and there's inherently no traffic flow from the date from the DMZ back into the the other interface of the firewall. And that's in those are policies enforced by the firewall. Unfortunately, these consumer routers have a they're really misusing the term DMZ. All it really means is that unsolicited traffic goes to that port or to that IP address. Traditional DMZs have been software configured in the router interface. The idea being that you may have wanted, for example, to run a web server or an FTP server or some kind of you know, traditional Internet service that you wanted to make available to the outside world. Well, that inherently means that your router, which would normally block unsolicited incoming traffic. Remember that as we've described NAT routers many times here, the way the way a NAT router works is that only by traffic egressing from the internal network to the outside is a is a path created, a little bit of memory in the router that allows traffic returning from the exact same destination to go to be routed back to the same computer in the private network which originated it. So the idea is that unexpected traffic, unsolicited traffic, hits the router. The router inherently has, has no, no expectation of receiving it. That traffic, because it's unsolicited, wasn't the result of initial, of, of initial outgoing traffic that created a return path. So what in, inherently a service, a ser- any kind of a service on the Internet is by, by definition – a, rec- a recipient of unsolicited traffic. You know, Google doesn't know I'm going to be sending them traffic. I just do. And because they're a service, they accept that unsolicited traffic and respond to it. So the idea was that this so-called DMZ was initially set up in routers where you could configure, manually configure, one of your machine's IP addresses to receive that DMZ traffic. Now, it gets a little tricky, though, because you are normally configuring a certain IP to receive unsolicited traffic, saying this, this computer runs this service. I want it to receive unsolicited traffic. The problem is routers assign IP addresses based on pretty much the order in which machines appear as they're powered up after the router is on. You know, it uses DHCP to assign them. So... The problem is that if you configure an IP to receive traffic, you need to make sure that that computer is always at that same IP. There are ways to do that. You're able to uh, to assign IPs to MAC addresses, the MAC address being the hardware address of the computer's network interface card. So you bind a, an IP to the MAC address, and then you bind this DMZ routing to the IP. Anyway, you can see how complex that is. Imagine if you simply had a hole on the back of the router that said DMZ here. Well, in that case, all those problems are solved. You simply plug the computer into that hole, 
which is the DMZ port, and it by virtue of the configure the pre-configuration of the router, it will receive unsolicited traffic. So you can see that this has become a popular feature on some consumer routers. Oh, so when he says DMZ port, there really is a DMZ port. Yeah, it's oh. exactly it's a DMZ port. Oh, because I'm so, used to doing it, you know, kind of assigning it to the IP, by IP address. Exactly, yeah. and so so this is a, a a a feature that he's talking about. The problem is it's not on its own net. It's not on a separate network. So we've still got the problems that are that allow this to be exploitable. I'll remind people that WEP, the the the, the security. Uh, the so-called wireless security that that made Terry flinch when his son said, "Hey, Dad, can we change our home network to WEP? Because I want to put my Nintendo DS on the network." His Gibsonian response. Yeah, his his Gibsonian response was, "Uh, rather not, son. No, no, sorry. Um, no, no. Anyway, so the problem is that you know WEP is really badly broken." Uh, in fact, that was the last topic. I think the last show we did on it right, was really, right. ba- really badly broken web because now it takes less than a minute to crack the key using freely available, um, you know, software that that's available on the internet. So, anyway, the the problem is it's only by performing true subnet separation where the non-secure network is on its own subnet and and those two subnets, the secured and the unsecured, are joined by a third. That's the only way to prevent to to, to prevent cross network leakage, because there are again freely available tools that will allow you to to do ARP spoofing, ARP address resolution protocol spoofing, which essentially allows somebody across the street to to pretend to be the gateway for your network and receive all the traffic coming to and from your entire household. So it's really something you want to avoid. And I don't know of any way to do that securely. And I spent a lot of time thinking about it, except to have three routers, one that does the Y-ing function and the other two to just do natting function to essentially create one-way valves. And because ARP traffic is always constrained within the local network. ARP traffic never crosses a router boundary unless it's specifically set up to do bridging, which is not something that any consumer routers are able to do. Okay. The Y solution would solve it, right? The three router solution. The three router Y configuration would. And I will mention that routers are now so cheap, you know, that I mean, you 40 can just bucks, get- another 40 bucks, dude. Is that exactly? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and there is, you know, and I think this would work too. Nintendo sells, maybe it wouldn't work. Yeah, maybe it wouldn't. They sell a little USB Wi-Fi key for use with the DS. And the idea is you plug it into a computer's USB port and it shares the computer's internet access uh, with the DS. So, But I think that wouldn't solve the problem because... No, because, well, because what you've done is you... Computer. Well, yeah, you've just created a probably very insecure, um, you know, hotspot wired into your right into your computer. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So don't use that either. And I presume that uh, any newer hardware that has Wi-Fi is going to support WPA. The DSs have been out for a while, and that's why it doesn't. I'm sure. Well, is it cheaper? Is it cheaper to implement WEP than WPA? Um. Could that no. be why? 
it's just it's just history, really. Yeah. Because remember the WPA also uses RC four, which is a very lightweight. It's it's. I mean, RC four is a fantastic crypto. There's nothing wrong with it, except that it was done wrong. It was implemented wrong in WEP, so that the it the, for example, if you just throw away the the first 256 bytes of pseudo-random data that RC4 generates. RC4 is a pseudo-random stream generator, but it, it because it uses mixing within a small pool, it, that, that pool doesn't randomize itself initially, and that allows that, that for bad keys to be created, which are like extra non-random. Right. And because we know the beginning of the packet contents, by taking all that together... The, the you know the, the the both the white hat and the black hat security guys have figured out how to just crack it but but all WPA does is fix those implementation mistakes so it is not more computationally difficult to implement WPA I think that it just wasn't a big enough issue and you know I'm glad that we're making it a bigger issue yeah, because yeah. Boy, I mean, you know, toys like like the Nintendo DS need to be able to support the same security that the rest of a security-aware household is running. Edward Hansen in Rexton, New Brunswick, Canada, switched to OpenDNS. We were talking about that the other day because of the DNS vulnerability. He says, hi, Steve and Leo. Several years ago, as soon as it was available in my area, I upgraded from dial-up to DSL for my internet connection. I then added a D-Link DI604 router to the mix after hearing you tout the benefits of routers on security now. Up till a few weeks ago when I heard your discussions about DNS, my router had been configured to use my ISP's DNS settings. Since then, I reconfigured it to use OpenDNS. That's where my question comes in. For some reason, maybe because it's an old router, the only way I could manually enter the server addresses for OpenDNS was to toggle from dynamic PPPoE to static PPPoE. Does this make my system any less secure? He also has a question about Shields Up. Every time I run a test, the site reports full stealth. Does that mean I'm completely invisible to and safe from internet miscreants? Okay, first part. Um, dynamic versus static PPPoE. PPPoE stands for point-to-point protocol over Ethernet, which is the protocol that... DSL often uses the very very first DSL just used static IP address assignment. I've got a friend who still has five yeah. static IPs and he loves them. He's never letting get he's ne- never letting them go, he hopes. And if he were to change anything, they would take that away because, you know, they're not liking having him tying up five IP addresses right. when IPs have, have become um, increasingly difficult to obtain. So so PPPoE is like Point-to-point protocol, which was the original, the original PPP protocol, was what dial-up used, where you would inherently establish a, a modem connection, and then over that dial-up link, the point-to-point protocol was defined to assign your machine its IP address and DNS and, and other services. So a variation of that is PPPoE, which rather than using a dial-up, it uses an Ethernet connection, thus DSL, but a, a similar protocol. Um, So to answer his question, it does not make his system any less secure. It might make it a little more brittle in terms of the ISP doing something, assuming that it's set to dynamic, and then he's got it set for static. Yeah, that's what I I was wondering, because if he's using static, he's going to have to put his his, static IP address in. It may stop working at some point. 
Precisely. Yeah. So so it's not less secure, but if if it stops working, then he'll he'll have to switch it back to dynamic, get the IP address that is now being assigned, and then switch it back to static and then put those same values in. That's what I meant when I said it might be a little more brittle because he could lose his connectivity, but while you know, while his ISP his does, does you know does not have strong DNS servers. I would say it's worth using strong DNS servers until his ISP gets their act together. Yeah. yeah so it's because it's using uh, uh, dynamic PPPoE. One of the things it wants to do is dyna- not only dynamically set the IP address, but dynamically set the DNS servers. Precisely. Yeah. Essentially, you know, we're going to do a, a show here on DHCP shortly because we've talked about it several times. I want to talk about how very comprehensive it, it, the DHCP service is that does much more, can do much more than, than just give an IP and DNS stuff. But a lot but of times, yeah. a lot of times, though, you'll have a setting, you know, you could set DHCP, but then you'll say, uh, I don't know if it's an override, but you could still set the DNS settings who wins in a case like that the dhcp server or the manual settings i've put in there oh your local settings always win so 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 if you're allowed to put those in that's then you don't have to worry yes and in fact for example you know many people who've configured windows systems will will Mm -hmm, be familiar mm -hmm. with that dialogue in windows where you have two separate sections of obtain my ip address separately or allow me to specify it and then separately you're able to to say you know i'm going to provide my own dhcp servers so for example, other people with different setups um, are well. In fact, even Edward, come to think of it, um, if he's we don't know that he's a Windows user. I don't know whether oh, the he can Mac- do it in Windows. He just wants to do it in the router, so it applies to all the systems. Right, 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 right. But but just so we we finish that thought because you and I just jumped ahead here. Right. Uh, even though his router is offering to do his D, to specify his DNS servers, he can certainly use the Windows dialog to configure whatever DNS he wants to, which will then will then ignore what his PPPoE connection is providing, and and you know, he'll be able to override those settings. Yeah. Okay. Um, oh, and oh. His, second, his second part of his question was, oh yeah, he's, shields he's, up. He's using shields up, and it says full stealth. He asks, does that mean I'm completely invisible to and safe from internet miscreants? Well. Let me tell you exactly what it means, and then you can decide about the miscreants. What, it, what full stealth means is that, that no matter what shields up sent to you, uh, I send out a broad spectrum of, of probes, I, ICMP, funky packets on illegal ports like port zero that doesn't really exist, and some things respond to it. Some routers will send back a ping to ICMP, even though they are otherwise told to be full stealth. What, what I did in the second generation Shields Up technology was I created a, a completely wide open scoop. And I'm, when I'm probing a remote IP, I'm looking for any traffic of any sort coming back from that IP. And so I'm, you know, I'm casting a wide net. And so the only way you can get full stealth is if in response to everything that GRC spews at your machine, nothing, not a single packet of any kind or description emerges from your network back to us. So, so now, I mean, now it's, he says, is, uh, am I completely safe from miscreants? No. And that's my point. Yeah. Exactly. Is that, you know, if you're out on the net 
messing around. It's still mess up. Yeah, yeah. Some somebody can get your IP and, for example, blast you, uh, your IP with a denial of service attack. Now they won't they won't know that you're still there because you are completely stealth. That is, nothing they, they they do to try to evoke a response from you will will function um, unless you are exposing something you know, like deliberately, but even through NAT, any track would, would have to be coming back from the same remote source so the NAT router would route it back to your system. So full stealth means that for unsolicited traffic, you are absolutely invisible. But again, if you if, if you expose yourself and your IP, someone could still blindly flood that IP and and hold you off the net. Yeah. And of course, we've got spam, and we've yeah, got there's plenty of other ways you can invite people all in. All kinds of other bad things that can right. happen. In fact, right. I would say the you know it's not a particularly common attack that somebody find you know sniffs around and finds a vulnerability on your system and then gets in. Nowadays, the you know if you open an attachment, you're making the connection. If you uh, if you uh, click a link in an email, you may go to a website that now says, "Oh, good, we got a port eighty connection going." And by the way, take this and <laughs> sends you. An exploit. So there's all sorts of ways you can invite these guys in that this isn't going to prevent. Yep. And in fact, I, I would go a little further and, and to say, you know, may, mostly what Shields Up nowadays is intended to do and what full stealth is to do is to provide you with information. You know, people want or may not care about their router um, responding to a ping or not. Um, this just tells them whether it does. And yeah. so it's not saying, you know, full stealth protects you. It's just saying full stealth. Uh, means you're full stealth. Yeah, you know it's like if if that's if that's if that matters to you, it's then a, it's a part of, to confirm it. Yeah, it's a part of your overall uh, security strategy, Profile. but it's not in and of itself sufficient. You need to do other things too, right? Um, but it's a great start, and it's why we use routers. Mike Graham in Hoptakong, New Jersey, rolls his own DNS with something called TreeWalk. He says, "Hi, St- <laughs> hi, Stephen, <laughs> Leah. What are you laughing at? Hi." <laughs> Your stoned voice. Ah, tree. Should I do that? Hey, Rose's own, <laughs> Rose's own, man. Oh, Stephen Leo, I once used a free utility called TreeWalk DNS. And it's, I won't keep it up. Then installed the local DNS service right on the local machine. At the time, I used it to replace my ISP's crappy service, but discontinued using it when I changed ISP's. Maybe now is the time to reconsider this and return to using it. Have you had any experience with TreeWalk? Would it would using it help with the DNS security problems that are around? Also, in their forums, they said it is not vulnerable to DNS spoofing attacks because only the local machine can access it, so intruders are out in the cold. It makes sense to me. See it at, at uh, ntcanuck, N-T-C-A-N-U-C-K dot com. Are you familiar with this uh, program, Steve? Intimately, because really? it was developed on our forums. Oh, you're kidding. Um, there, uh, it's it's developed by a couple guys, and it is widely used among the security conscious folk who hang out in the news groups at GRC. Well, I'll be so, danged. So, uh, and and just for the sake of any listeners who don't know about like real old traditional non web based, but you know Usenet NNTP style forums, uh, we run GRC runs. I run a bunch of really worthwhile security groups. Um, I think the fact that they're not web browser based tends to keep them, you know, more high end and sober. You know, we don't yeah. have flame wars and script kitties and, and, and all that. 
if you if you you know anyone with Outlook or any third-party newsreader can just uh, it's news.grc.com is the name of the news server. I run it on a free BSD Unix server. It's real INN news, just like the internet, you know, used to use. I guess it still does somewhere. But anyway, um, yes, many of the people who hang out there are using TreeWalk. And, you know, they're all, actually, they've been doing a lot of beta testing of my forthcoming DNS profiling uh, facility, which will be added to GRC shortly. Um, and, you know, like, they'll, like, manually configure their TreeWalk DNS which is just bind it, it, it's a it's a nicely packaged version of bind 9 all fully patched so it's got you know port randomization but they'll for example configure theirs to use a single port and verify that GRC sees queries coming from a single port meaning that it's not safe and then they'll switch it back to using random source ports and verify that it's working right so um, by all means it's a treewalk dns is a is a very nice way of running bind i would say it's not for the faint of heart i mean bind <laughs> is a sophisticated oh, yeah, no kidding sophisticated dns server but didn't, uh, bind, didn't bind have didn't bind have this problem this uh this dns poisoning problem i thought it did well you know bind yes i mean bind are the servers that did get patched just recently ah. so so it's you know it it needs you need to be using the latest version of Bind because in fact remember Yahoo was way back on Bind eight yeah. and they said yeah there's nothing wrong with Bind eight we're staying with it until Kaminsky came out with his news and it's like ah <laughs> oh, okay we're abandoning all of our Bind eight we're going to Bind nine okay so this would would you have to download uh, Bind to make this work or because I well, see yeah, the tre- latest version is from two thousand five I'm seeing of Treehawk Tree uh, Walk. Uh, then you got me. I didn't do any homework um, just because I know that these guys are on top of this. So um, I wonder if it if it's just a front end to bind and you still need to download the latest bind. That that may very well that, be. That would solve the problem if they did that. Yeah, I'm running bind nine myself on my own little local freebie uh, freebsd machine. So I just I've never messed with TreeWalk myself, but right. I know that a lot of people run it on Windows. Well, it's a pain to install bind, so if this makes it any it's easier. <laughs> yep. That would be that would be certainly appreciated. Um, Danny Howerton at Ogden, Utah, brings us even more bad news about Wells Fargo passwords. You remember last oh. time when we talked about what a lousy job Wells Fargo was doing? Uh, wait, it gets worse, Leo. So I, th- I think what the, the 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 last time it was it was truncating them. It would only allow you to use a certain length. Anyways, hey Steve, after hearing about the poor password practices of Wells Fargo the other week. I was tempting to, tempted to do some further testing with the way it works, since that's my primary bank. I found out the passwords are also not case-sensitive. What? Uh. What? <laughs> I called up Wells Fargo, got transferred to their technical department, where the guy confirmed that, in fact, they're case-sensitive passwords. He said he would submit a ticket to their security team. Uh. <laughs> and that'll work. What kind of security team do you have to submit a ticket to to get them to do case-sensitive passwords? He said he would submit a ticket, but doubted it would get changed unless a lot of people request it. This is where you come in. If we could spread the word and get enough feedback to Wells, we could possibly change this. Okay, so this is a classic what? example. This has got to be... Now, you've seen the warnings on on secure login sites that say, warning, passwords are case sensitive. Yes, as they ought so, to be. As they should be, because, for example, using random case or a case that, like, you know, 
first, third, fifth, or first, fourth, sixth, and sixth, you know, whatever, you know, you, you could easily use case sensitivity to take a short phrase and give it much more robust security. Well, what was it you said last time is like another eight bits of uh, encryption or something like that? Another- well, it depends upon, yes. Uh, essentially, every, every character whose case you change doubles the strength of the password right. because it adds a bit, an effective bit of, of, of complexity, meaning that you have to try the password with, with that character lowercase, right. then try it with an uppercase. Right. And if so, if you've got, if it's case sensitive and you've got a long, you know, a nicely long password, but then you also play some game with the case, maybe you uppercase the vowels and lowercase the consonants, you, you know, you make up your own rule and I mean, it's a nice way of strengthening a password. Well, clearly some people were having problems logging into Wells Fargo. So what did they do? Oh, we'll make it easier for them. And in the process, they make it easier for the bad guys. Now you don't have I mean, non-case sensitive passwords are just similarly weakening the login. And remember what we heard before was that they don't even care if there's extra stuff added to the end. And, and the question was, how many characters do they consider significant? How many are they saving? So it's just, a, you know, it's like an eight character, all uppercase password. That's ridiculous. Yeah, that's just ridiculous. Yeah. There's no reason for that. And it's and again, it is it is them buckling to the common consumer who is unable to log in. But you ask yourself, how upset will the common consumer be when their password is stolen and yeah. their bank account are emptied? Yeah. Because, you know, you know, Wells Fargo's password policy is yeah. so poor. Good point. All you have to do, I mean, it's time to start training people about case sensitivity and passwords. Unbelievable. The real benefit. Coming up, our savvy observation of the week and our very good point of the week. <laughs> But right now, I have a very good point to make about security at your place of business. If you're using a a PIX system from Cisco, you know it's at the end of life. If you're not using anything at all, you're rolling your own. You want to talk about Astaro. A-S-T-A-R-O dot com. Astaro is the makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. They actually make a web gateway as well. But let me tell you about the Astaro Security Gateway. This is the ultimate in a UTM Total protection, best of breed in open source and commercial software. It's got anti-spam, anti-phishing, two antiviruses for email, another antivirus for the web, completely transparent encryption. Now, let me let you understand what that means. It means your users will be encrypting and decrypting, even signing using standards like OpenPGP or SMIME automatically. It's handled by the Astaro. Of course, you've got the firewall, obviously, the intrusion protection, the remote access via SSL, VPN, version 7 of the Astaro Security Gateway. i got to recommend it. It's, it's also scalable up to 10 units without an additional load balancing. So as your business grows, Astaro grows with you. Uh, you can try it free right now. Yes, a free demo unit for your business. See how much Astaro can do for you by calling 877, the number 4, Astaro, a Cisco PIX user. Tell them that. They'll give you a special discount because your picks, your picks is out of date it's run, and they're not going to update it. 877, the number four, Astaro, 877-427-8276. And home users, Astaro's free for you. You put it on your own hardware, download the software, or you can get a VMware appliance with Astaro so you could try it out. 
It's really a great solution. ASTARO.com. We thank Astaro for their support for three years now of security now. Steve Arino, are you ready? Yep. The savvy observation of the week. <laughs> Tom Nittell of Lexington, Kentucky says, Hi, Steve. In episode 156, a listener asked if he could bypass DNS by directly entering the IP address of the websites he wants to visit. This approach won't protect him from the DNS spoofing vulnerability, however, for a number of reasons. Really? Well, that's interesting. First, not all websites use relative links to navigate among the pages. So you could enter in 192.168.1.1, but when you click the link, it's going to come back to you as, you know, example.com slash my link, not 192.168.1.1 slash my link. Good point. In fact, yep. my site does that. You can yep. come in via an IP address but we're going to rewrite the address for subsequent pages to, to be twit.tv. Second, all external links on the page will not be IP-based. That includes subdomain links. So continuing the example above, a link might be coolstuff.example.com. Yep. Even if you enter an IP address. To click that link. Bye-bye. Third, only the web pages that his browser loads are user-controllable in this fashion. All his other applications will use domain names, email, news groups, RSS readers, podcast catchers, Windows update, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Nothing you can do to stop those programs from using DNS lookup because they do it automatically, transparently, without your knowledge or uh, intent. In fact, this includes the browser itself if the browser is configured to automatically check for updates. Oh, of course, didn't even think of that. His point is DNS is just too integral a part of computing now to be successfully on the net without it. So you're you're not doing yourself any good by entering an IP addresses. We should have mentioned that actually. Yep, I th- that's why I thought it was a really good point. Yeah. Is that you know technically I got hooked. I got you know. A you little, answered his question. I, exactly. I got yeah. excited by the idea that you could use the IP address itself. You know you and yes you can get to the website and frankly then, um you know that first page that you bring up would work, but. If the if the web even if that original if that real website redirected you to a URL, your browser would then ask for that website's right. domain name, get spoofed, and go to the wrong place. Right. So Nothing so you're, you're only safe if you go by IP and you notice that it stayed by IP when you're viewing that page. Um, otherwise, as as Tim notes, you know you're back in using DNS. And I, and I liked his point, though, here where he says, remember, everything else uses it too. DNS is just too integral a part of computing to be able to, you know, use, use the Internet without yeah. it. Yeah. Good point, Tom. We should have we said that. Mark Argent, or perhaps it's Marc Argent, makes the very good point of the week. Dear Steve, is there a way of checking a DEP alert triggered by, for instance, Flash? Is an attempted exploit or just... Poor programming by Adobe. It seems to me that blindly disabling DEP could be a potentially dangerous thing to do. And I do want to point out, we did some research. Uh, Solus Sui did it for us on Silverlight, and you can turn on DEP and still use Silverlight. Oh, good. Yeah. So if um, I'm using Flash, I've got DEP turned on, and I get a DEP alert, does that always mean somebody's trying to attack me? Well, this is what I loved about his point, was that I too glibly said, oh, you know, turn DEP on, and then start turning it off when you have problems. 
And he says, well, okay, wait a minute. What if, what if that problem is because of an it's exploit? An yeah. It's like, ah, oh, yeah, that's Oops. a very good point. Yeah. So um, anyway, I, I love the point that he make. Uh, and, and he asked, you know, he asks, is there a way for us to know? And it would only by being careful about your observation. I mean, for right. example, did you get that when you launched some flash on a website, in which case I would definitely be suspicious. Right of the flash that I got from the website might be exploiting a flaw in flash. And then I would be inclined not to disable web. Um, I guess for me, and this is why I, was, I didn't communicate as well at all is when I'm using a machine that has web on, it's normally not net based things. It's just, you know, I'm, you know, I'm dragging something around to a tray or, or firing up an app that's not web or not net based. And it says, bang, and you know, it blows up. It's like, okay, fine. This thing's not compatible. But certainly when you're doing anything with the internet and, or email or running something you got from somewhere else. And, and that action causes the problem then you absolutely need to think, wait a minute, maybe this is the whole point. It's protecting me from what would right. have just happened otherwise, right. which is what you want. You don't want to say, oh, look, here's another incompatibility with web, and then disable it for that product from ever on. So I thought Mark raised a very good point that I wanted to make very clear to our listeners. Good. Thank you, Mark. And that brings us to the conclusion of our 12 fantastic questions. We'll do this every other episode. So if you have a question for Steve, you go to GRC dot com slash feedback feedback okay and please do i really really appreciate getting the mail i have i will apologize again as i do every time i talk about this that i am unable to respond to or frankly even to read right. all the mail that right. i get uh, i checked it this morning to prepare these questions and there was 450 some <laughs> submissions from last time i checked it because i emptied it every time so i again I really appreciate it. I, I love reading them. I do read all that I can, and I find time, you know, in spare moments to read more of them. So please keep them coming. And we, you know, we should mention that often the question that we read on the air, even though we use somebody's name, is representative of a number of the similar questions from a number of different people. Very good point. Yeah. I, like, like, for example, many people wrote about Chrome. And so we will be talking about Chrome in, in sufficient, I mean, right. in all the depth we typically do about anything um, as soon as I'm up to speed. Good. Steve Gibson is at grc.com. That's where you'll find the show notes, transcripts of the show, so you could read along if you're a, what do you call that if you learn by reading? A visual learner? I guess. You can also uh, listen to the 16 kilobit versions, which are very small files, good for downloading on dial-up. It's all at grc.com, as are all of Steve's great free programs like Shields Up and the one and only Spinrite, the ultimate hard drive recovery and maintenance utility. Yay. If you've got more than one hard drive, you need Spinrite. It is, it is absolutely true. Steve, thank you very much. A great show. Next, Always a pleasure. Do you know what we're talking about next week, or is it going to be a surprise? i got a list of things, so I have to choose one from the list. <laughs> Pick one. It'll All be right. a crap bag. Right. Hey, thank you, Steve. Talk to you then, Leo. Talk to you next time on Security Now. Bye-bye. Security Now.